Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli, and today we're joined by senior statistician and epidemiologist uh, Brandon Grossart to talk a little bit about statistics, study design, bias, um, just a bunch of high yield ev evidence based medicine topics. So, Brandon, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. And just in terms of a little bit where we're headed, you know, all otolaryngology trainees are required to do research during residency. We all have journal clubs. Um, we're all tasked with re reading papers at different times to uh, incorporate into our practice. And so we're going to touch on how to read studies, um, how to conduct studies, how to think about designing um, a study to test a research question, and then some of the common pitfalls associated with, for instance, interpreting p-values and um, clinical versus statistical significance, things like that. Um, the only other thing before we get started is, Brandon, you have a PDF, um, I believe, that uh, we are going to publish alongside um, this episode series. It's going to be probably a two-part episode series that you'll be able to find on headmirror.com. Um, if you go to ENT in a nutshell, and the, if you find this episode on there, that PDF will be available. Brandon, do you want to just describe what's in that PDF briefly? Yeah, it will just be, uh, uh, I think maybe four or five pages. It's going to be very high level um, and kind of a visual um, based schematic to go along with some of the discussion today. Sometimes I find that more visual learners, it's good for them to see, you know, arrows and boxes and, and those types of things to help them kind of follow along a bit, a bit more. Oh, very good. All right. So just starting out, um, just taking like a thousand foot view here before getting into the specific study types and things like that. A lot of studies that we read in ENT, for example, tend to report on some association, and oftentimes that's some statistically significant association, and uh, there's this suggestion of causality there, this the idea that we're coming upon some finding that um, is significant in some way, and um, there's this causal relationship that's being tested. Can you just review for us the elements that go into establishing causality? Yeah, so... There's been, I would say, a decent number of uh, publications over the years, but the, the most kind of cited one uh, or most popular one, even though it's quite out of date now, uh, is the Bradford Hill paper from 1965. And there's kind of a laundry list of, of things that they go through to uh, get at the, the idea of when can we roughly say that something might be a, a cause of an outcome or an effect. And uh, I always, you know, that list is, it's kind of more exhaustive than, than I think it necessarily needs to be uh, for kind of general uh, understanding of, of causality. Um, I think the, the really big piece um, that you really kind of almost always have to have is the temporality assumption, which is, you know, for something to be a cause, it really needs to come before the effect. Uh, there's also the idea of, of um, a gradient assumption. And so if you have more of some, you know, like more exposure to something or, or you've, in, you know, inhaled or consumed something uh, more that you would expect then the effect to potentially be more. Uh, and then really the, the piece that I think has come into more um, focus in recent years is the, the biological plausibility piece, or just, I call it the plausibility piece, whereas, you know, for A and B to link their to be linked to each other. So if A is the cause and B is the effect or X and Y or whatever variables you want to use, names you want to use. So A needs to come before B. Um, more of A leads to more of B and the other 
the plausibility piece is that there needs to be some sort of physiologic or biologic way of us trying to explain um, why A is associated with B. Um, now, I'm not saying that in one study, you're going to hit all of these requirements at once. It's often the case that you'll come up with something that you've just observed by chance or uh, serendipitously, and then downstream, you kind of dig into it more and you kind of are able to uncover the plausibility piece of that requirement for causality, for example. Uh, so that's kind of the general three big hitters, I guess I would say, for, for causality. The, and in my mind, at least, uh, maybe not for everyone, the biggest one is always the temporality thing. A cause to be a cause needs to come before the effect um, in time. Seems like uh, common sense, but uh, sometimes a little bit harder to tease out than you might think. Uh, one other thing that the, the, the what you called gradient, um, for those unaware, that's also sometimes called a dose-response uh, relationship. Next question for you, Brandon. We see all sorts of, um, sometimes when you're trying to uh, publish a journal article or you're reviewing an article, you'll see this uh, piece at the bottom of the abstract, for instance, that might say the, the level of evidence that this study is. and Or you might find online that there's all different uh, metrics used or different grading systems to evaluate levels of evidence. Can you touch a little bit on um, what is this idea of a level of, level of evidence? Um, what makes a study lower or better level of evidence? I, th I think the most common way that, that people kind of display this level of evidence is, is almost in um, what the first time I saw it almost looked like a food pyramid kind of way, uh, which is, you know, like lower quality evidence uh, is at the bottom of the pyramid. And, you know, the higher you go up the pyramid, the more you can trust uh, that what is being said uh, or reported in a study um, isn't somehow being impacted by things like bias and confounding and those types of things. But levels of evidence um, and the many different um, lists that have been um, given over the years for kind of how to rank those really boils down to um, a roadmap for how you can interpret the outcomes of a study, interpret the kind of the strength of the association or relationship they find between um, whatever they're studying. So um, like an, an environmental exposure and a later onset of a disease, for example, it, it gives you a feel for um, how you can interpret that, uh, those outcomes without being, um, without that, those outcomes being, su are suffering from uh, potential biases um, or being kind of contorted in, in some way. I always think of it in, in a layered approach uh, where the, 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 the lowest level of evidence is really evidence at the level uh, of like, for example, a case study or um, something that's kind of reported at the, uh, as an association in a population at large or something that's referred to as an ecological study sometimes by epidemiologists. Um, and then as you work your way up where you, you know, you're specifically targeting a population uh, like a case control study, but the design itself has some built-in complexities that make it so that the findings um, are more likely to be affected by particular types of bias. Um, and then you move a little bit higher and you get into what's called a cohort study. Um, and once you get to a cohort study, the flow of time is now concurrent with the flow of time in reality. So you're going from older to newer. Um, and then so you, those studies are less prone to certain types of biases. Uh, the 
the kind of the best type of clinical study or is a random uh, randomized controlled trial. And that's the piece where you've kind of removed the the self-selecting of people uh, into exposure groups from what are the observational types of, of analytic studies, the case control and cohort studies. And then the top is really, and, and I know some people call this uh, systematic review or meta-analyses, but really what the, the top of most of those pyramids is, um, is essentially consistency. Um, and that's what those are really getting at is if study after study after study finds the same association between two things or the same effect, then you can be you can be quite sure that that effect can probably be replicated in most any population and that it's real. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not still the possibility of there being some other factor that's not accounted for that um, all of the studies accidentally ignored, but it's it's kind of the the top level of evidence in the sense that it's the most rigorous, most replicated, um, and most likely to represent at least what our knowledge is at the current time. Why don't we start with talking about uh, case control studies then and kind of work our way up to the pyramid. Um, could you define what a case control study is and just where where is this particularly useful? Yeah, so, and this is one of the places where the um, the little PDF document that you can download will be helpful to you is, is the just kind of looking at case control cohort and randomized controlled trials. The, the case control study is a type of analytic study, um, but it's kind of different from the cohort and randomized controlled trial studies because you start from the outcome. Um, so you start from the effect, if you will, in the cause-effect relationship. Um, so you start by finding a group of people have a particular condition of interest, and that's what the case control name comes from. You've, you start from your cases, usually. You then find a group that is similar to your cases, um, but that do not have the disease or condition of interest. Um, and by similar, I mean, in epidemiology, normally you, tr- you try and match or somehow balance them so that they are of similar age, of similar sex, potentially of similar uh, race, ethnicity. Um, there are other things you can match on depending on how you want to design it, but uh, the basics are age and sex and sometimes race and ethnicity. And so essentially what you're doing is you're creating a group of, of people that look like the cases, but that don't have that disease or condition of interest. And then you actually look backwards in time to look at essentially the, the risk factors or the, the exposures that the person had throughout their life. Um, you can look very proximate to the time of when they became a case um, or when they were sampled in and matched as a control. Or you can look very far away. Um, you can look 20, 30, 40 years back and see whether they had, for example, environmental exposures like maybe pesticides or, or uh, maybe they were exposed to large amounts of noise because they worked on a farm or, or something like that. Those would be the risk factors uh, or the independent variables, we call them in statistics, but um, essentially the X's in your Y equals X way of thinking about uh, things in a mathematical statistical way. So you start from the dependent variable or the outcome status case versus control, and you look for risk factors in the past to see whether or not the frequency of those risk factors was higher or lower in cases. That's really what you're quantifying at the analytic stage. And then the the idea is that 
if all of the people who are cases had a higher dose or a higher frequency or however you quantify it of the risk factor than did the controls, then that thing is associated, that exposure is associated with disease or case status. One of the benefits of case control studies is that, and this is kind of the the driver for case control studies historically, is that case control studies, because you start from the case status, you can study extremely rare diseases. If you were if you were to start, you know, from a population and go forward and you were you were wanting to look for something that was rare, you'd have to start from a huge population to find that rare thing. But when you start from the thing that's the rare thing, the outcome, and you look backwards in time, you're able to kind of uh, turn the study design um, upside down or kind of on its head. You're still you're still able to look for these relationships between risk factors and exposures and um, all of the different you know environmental or or medical um, things that happened in that person's past, um, and see whether or not those things were more common in cases than in controls or less common in cases than in controls. But now you can recruit a case series or a group of cases of an extremely rare disease. Uh, maybe over a 30-year window or a 40-year window that you wouldn't be able to wait 30 or 40 years if you instead designed your study as a cohort study. You would have to wait for those cases to develop. You now start from the cases and look backwards. And so the the rare um, disease component of case control studies is, is, is what makes it an attractive design. There's another piece of a case control study that is an attractive study design from the standpoint of if there's a lot of work involved, um, like if you're reviewing records, uh, if you're, you know, like having to invite patients in to do in-person exams or that types of things. So if there's a lot of, of grunt work or, or physical work involved in abstracting all of the information or gathering um, all of the information for risk factors, exposures, that kind of stuff. It's much easier to do that in a smaller group of people, which you have in a case control study, because you'll have cases and then a matched group of controls than it would be if you had to start from a huge population, assess all of that information on that entire population, and then carry them forward. And then the driving factor for all of your statistical analyses and your power, which we'll talk about um, a bit later, is really hinging on, you know, you're kind of like uh, waiting in anticipation of, of people developing this extremely rare thing. Uh, so you're kind of, uh, you're hoping for the worst in the sense of that you, you, you want the, you want the most number of cases or outcomes as possible in a cohort study for something that's extremely rare. Um, but you have to wait forever for those things to manifest. So maybe one example would be if you take, um, it's an example of a type of study would you take um, folks with who developed uh, laryngeal carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and then you took a control group um, without uh, the, the, those that didn't develop uh, larynx cancer. And then you looked back in time and assessed the odds of whether or not they had a history of smoking. One element of that that I would like to touch on is this idea of the odds of smoking, that when you're doing a case control study, you're actually it's not so much assessing the risk, but it's a very specific um, outcome dealing with the odds of something. It's a little bit sometimes difficult to totally wrap our minds around because it's not quite as intuitive as a hazard ratio might be. Can you touch on it, the odds ratio or the outcome measures typically reported with the case control study? 
Yeah, so the normal the normal way that you will analyze a case control study is using something that's called logistic regression, or if you want to analyze it, taking into account the matching component, you use conditional logistic regression. But what you're getting at is whether or not the odds of that risk factor uh, in the case group are more or less common than the odds of that risk factor in the control group. Um, and when I say risk factor, I mean the exposure, the thing that happened in the past, um, your independent variable. Um, and so like you were you were talking about um, laryngeal cancer and you wanted to look at smoking. So smoking would be your your X or independent variable or risk factor that you were looking at in the past. Um, the cancer and the matched controls without cancer would be your dependent variable or case status or Y variable, um, however you want to think of it. And when I say the odds of smoking in the case group and the odds of smoking in the control group, that is a little bit different than the normal way of thinking of, of proportions um, or percentages. Um, and so odds is a ratio of two things. And so say you have five cases and three of them smoked, then the, the odds is three um, to two. So three smoked to two who didn't, instead of the normal way of, of thinking of it would be um, as a proportion where three of the five or 60% of them smoked. So it's a little, it's a little bit different um, in, the, in the way that it's described in the way that, it, that you have to interpret the things that are coming out of the model. Um, these types of studies are analyzed uh, using conditional logistic regression or logistic regression <clears throat> and as odds for case control studies because uh, that's the way that kind of like the the link function for that particular analysis um, is laid out that it it does a ratio of odds um, I, I don't want to get into the weeds too far I think the thing that that is important to remember is that no matter what comes out of your analysis, be it a case control study or a cohort study, um, which of which randomized controlled trials are a type of cohort study, the thing that you're estimating um, for case control study is called an odds ratio. The thing you're estimating for a cohort study is called a hazards ratio. In the end, what those, what those constructs are, are attempts at getting at um, a risk ratio, uh, which is kind of the classic epidemiologic way of looking at risk. Um, and as long as a few assumptions hold those estimates, the OR and the HR are both estimates of the relative risk or the risk ratio. There are some, some caveats and limitations to their interpretation. Um, and I don't like to get hung up too much in the, um, too much in the semantics of the difference between an odds ratio and a hazards ratio, uh, just know that in general practice, if something is a risk factor, the odds ratio, if you were to do a, a, a case control study, the odds ratio is usually larger than would be the hazards ratio or the risk ratio if you were to do a cohort study of the same relationship, assuming that the exposure was something that increased your risk. Um, that would be flipped if it was coded in the way that it decreased your risk. So hopefully didn't get too far out in the weeds there, but uh it, it is it is an important distinction, but it's not one that I think should paralyze people when they're reading the literature. And an odds ratio greater than one means that the risk factor was more common in cases than it was in controls. 
And the expectation or the idea is that that risk factor is associated positively. In other words, could potentially be a cause for uh, the outcome or case status. And if it's less than one, the reverse would be true. One last question related to odds ratios, Brandon. Um, I've seen this come up a couple times when reviewing journal articles and um, things. When odds ratios are used in scenarios that um, the outcome of interest is actually time dependent, um, just that when you're performing an odds uh, ratio ratio calculation that you're ignoring at, at the time to event component of that. Um, and that can be significant. For example, if you're asking the question, does this drug reduce the size of this tumor and you have a cohort that you're looking at over the course of three years, well, patient's follow-up duration impacts that time-dependent outcome of, of let's say that tumor grows, grows slowly over the course of a year or two years or three years, the follow-up matters. And so you have to take into account the follow-up duration um, and this, this time component. Can you just touch on that as it relates to odds, odds ratios? Yeah. So one of, I, I think if I'm understanding uh, your question, I think one of the things that is a limitation of a case control study is that they do suffer some, they do suffer from some types of potential biases or just problematic interpretation if the way that you recruit cases, in other words, the thing that is is the the anchoring point that you're starting from, is not equal um, amongst all of uh, of the cases, if you will, and so I think it, it what what you're expressing in in terms of your size of the size of the tumor, for example, like that, and so if if cases are recruited at different stages in their disease process, then you're going to have problems with finding uh, risk factors that are consistently predictive of case status. Uh, and let me try and explain that maybe in, in a little bit easier uh, of a framework than, than tumor size, because that's kind of like a, you know, that's kind of a continuous, me- <laughs> continuous measure. Um, so it would be difficult to, you know, like adjust for that potentially. Yeah. I mean, even the study I'm thinking of, um, was it's not technically a case control study, but instead it's just that they, you know, performed an odds ratio. I mean, you know, you see this sort of thing calculated in a number of different study types, not, you know, just case control studies. Yeah. So a a classic, a classic thing that case uh, or a classic limitation that case control studies can suffer from is something that's called incidence prevalence bias. Um, And, and that just sounds like a bunch of kind of fancy words thrown together. But the, the gist of it is that if you recruit cases that have disease, a disease, a certain disease, the thing that is your anchoring for your disease status, if you recruit them at the time that they come to a clinic, that time that they come to the clinic is differential for different severity of cases, for example. Um, and so the more severe cases would come likely come to the clinic sooner in their uh, progress of disease than would the less severe cases. The different and, and what this really is is the the difference between onset of disease and the and the diagnosis of disease. And so that lag time between onset of disease and diagnosis of disease can cause problems if the only people you are including are those who, if that lag time is large, are those who make it to the diagnosis stage. Now. That's usually what you have, though, is because you don't have the ones that you don't have. Um, and so the the issue there is that the more severe cases may be likely to, for example, die before they become diagnosed, then what you have is kind of a biased sample of cases 
who happen to survive X amount of time before they could be observed. Um, and then you look at risk factors. The, the, in general, the thought is that risk factors are going to be associated with the most severe forms of disease would be, should be the place. This is the, goes back to that gradient thing. Uh, that gradient idea of cause versus effect, the the cases that are most severe should have the highest exposures um, of a risk factor. So maybe it was pesticides or smoking or or whatever. Those are also this, in this case, those are the ones that are most likely to never come to clinical, potentially never, never come to clinical attention because they would die before that would happen. Um, and so the reason why it's called incidence prevalence bias is because you're starting with a set of prevalent cases instead of incident cases. Like if you were to look at all of the people who had laryngeal cancer on the 1st of January, 2021, um, that would be a prevalent group of people who have cancer, but the duration that they've had that cancer varies from patient to patient. Um, and so that's the time component that you're missing. You're missing that duration that the person has had disease and all of the ones that were the most severe are the ones that likely died and didn't make it to that prevalence date. Um, now, the optimal way of doing a case control study is to recruit your cases as incidence cases. Um, and so you would have a staggered effect of laryngeal cancer at the time of diagnosis or onset, um, staggered over a large period of time. And then those dates would be the same dates that you used for their, you know, their respective matched controls as kind of the anchoring time from which you look backwards in time for the risk factors. I think, I think that's getting at kind of the same, uh, the same idea of what you're, uh, what you're talking about with the time component. Another limitation of case control studies is that there are ways of kind of baking time into a case control study, even a well done case control study where you look at when the risk factor um, actually occurred in that person's life. And so, you know, suppose you have a very clean, nice group of laryngeal cancers uh, of cases that were recruited at the time that they were first diagnosed. And so you've kind of avoided the prevalence incidence bias issues as much as you can. But in that group that's that, that you've recruited, you're now looking back at their risk factors. So smoking, and there's a difference between, likely could be a difference between somebody who smoked for 20 years versus somebody who smoked for two years when they were a teenager. Uh, so there are ways of coding things on the statistical side that could say, I want to look at just smoking. That would be just one way of looking at it, any smoking um, prior to that cancer. Uh, or you could also um, slice and dice kind of your risk factors if you wanted to into saying, is it smoking early in life that was the most predictive of this type of cancer? Is it smoking around the time of midlife that was most predictive? And and as long as you have availability of the medical records or surveys or however you assess that smoking information, if you've, if you've gathered that data in a, in a kind of refined and granular level, you can create those types of analyses for the association between smoking and laryngeal cancer in a bit more of a refined way to say that, okay, the cases we're seeing of laryngeal cancer is mostly restricted to people who smoke before the age of 40 and for 10 or more years. And, and the way you do that is you just, you say, you create indicators for risk factors that say, you know, smoked in early life, smoked in midlife, smoked in late life, um, total number of pack years smoked prior to onset of disease, um, 
there are different ways of kind of like packaging these time components into risk factors that you can put into the model, um, even though you have some limitations in that you're in a case control study. There are other ways to then also filter out your case control study by doing something that's called stratification. And so maybe early onset laryngeal cancer is more associated with um, high amounts of smoking, whereas late onset laryngeal cancer. So this is now stratifying your case groups. Um, so maybe it's before the age of 50 and after the age of 50, you now do a stratified analysis and maybe you find that smoking is only associated with early onset laryngeal cancer and it's not really that associated with late onset. Um, so there are ways of kind of capturing time components in a case control study, but it is not as straightforward as um, in a cohort study framework where you start from the beginning and move forward in time uh, kind of in a, in a concurrent way. Does that help kind of clarify a little bit? Yeah, I think that's useful. I think um, we should probably try and find our way out of this case control rabbit hole. Uh, maybe one, one key takeaway with the odds ratios um, I, I, I think is useful is just this, uh, this basic idea that an odds ratio is not the same thing is saying the chance of something happening, the probability of, you know, blindly selecting something. It is specifically the odds of that happening, which is um, a specific, you know, term with its own definition. Um, but nevertheless, let's uh, move on to cohort studies. So Brandon, I am going to say um, this verbiage that I feel like I hear all the time. Um, it's something we talk a lot about in our various circles. And I want to tell me, want you to explain why you hate this term so much. I'm going to say retrospective cohort study. What's what's wrong with that nomenclature? So and maybe this is just uh, baked into my OCD, but anytime I hear the term retrospective um, cohort study, it, it kind of makes me cringe a bit. Um, I, I think the thing that bothers me the most about it is, is that it's counter to the way um, that the study is actually designed. Uh, and so the piece that's retrospective about a retrospective case control study is how you assessed the exposure groups. You looked back in time, but all of the analyses um, and all the way that you gather um, data to look at your outcomes, be it mortality or onset of disease or whatever, all of that is looking forward in time. That's by definition a cohort study. Um, so what I don't like about retrospective is that that word itself means looking back and it gives you the impression that what you're doing is similar to a case control study. Um, there's actually, I'm not the only one who has this hang up. Um, the preferred term, uh, at least within kind of the, the epidemiology space and uh, particularly in a dictionary of epidemiology, which is kind of the, the Bible of agreed upon language, uh, with, uh, within the epidemiology world, the preferred term is historical cohort study. And what that, what that's getting at is that instead of recruiting patients today, um, who have a particular exposure. So say we're looking at patients who had a surgery of a certain type, that's the exposure we're interested in. Instead of rec recruiting them today and following them forward in the future, um, I'm recruiting them based on historical information in their medical record. Uh, and so, it's, it's, the study is carried out the same way. All of the outcomes, all of the dependent variable Y is what you're, you're reviewing the records for to assess. You're starting from surgery um, and moving forward in time. 
Uh, it's just that you've gathered that information to define your exposure. So whether you're in the surgery or non-surgery group, by looking at historical information, um, all case control studies by design are retrospective. So if you say retrospective case control study, um, it's a bit redundant. Uh, and I would recommend not saying that. I would just call it a case control study. And cohort studies are really of two types. Um, historical cohort studies are those that used historical information to define the exposure. So for example, exposure could be surgery, non-surgery, or concurrent cohort studies, uh, which just means that you are recruiting patients into a surgery or non-surgery exposure group, or maybe two different types of surgery, you know, surgery A, surgery B exposure group, and following them forward from today onward. In practice, the way that you actually accomplish these types of, of studies, cohort studies, as, a, as an overarching umbrella type of study is no different. Um, cohort studies that are concurrent tend to only be useful for assessing proximate or acute outcomes um, because you have to wait for those outcomes to happen. Whereas with historical cohort studies, you can assess very long time lags between an exposure, surgery, not surgery, surgery A, surgery B, whatever, um, an outcome, which if, for example, you're interested in long-term outcomes of maybe 20, 30 years after a certain type of surgery, an historical cohort study is going to be pretty much the only way that you're going to be able to do that because the government or whatever other funding agency is supporting your research is not going to wait around 20 or 30 years for you to assess outcomes um, and show your results. One of the things you mentioned earlier about case control studies, uh, one of their advantages being uh, that they are able to look at rare disorders, things that occur infrequently, and starting with those cases. Um, can you touch how that works in the reverse for a cohort study? Yeah, so when you want to do a cohort study, um, what you're what you're now anchoring or sampling on is an exposure. Um, so in a case control study, say you're 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 starting from laryngeal cancer. We'll just use that as kind of a consistent example throughout. And you want to look at risk factors or exposures that might put you at higher risk for that. Um, if that's a relatively rare thing, you can recruit or gather all of those cases that over, you know, 10 years of time or something, and then match them to the controls and then look at the risk factors in the, in the past. If that thing is rare and you instead wanted to do a cohort study, you would have to start from an extremely large group of people, and you would have to have a predefined or specified risk factor of interest. And so a benefit of a case control study is that you can look at a whole bunch of different risk factors because you've sampled on the cases and the controls, and you're looking back. And so you can look at risk factors of smoking, of environmental exposures, pesticides, uh, diet, all of those different things in their association with laryngeal cancer. When you flip things around and start going in the proper order of time, you now need to have a predefined um, exposure or independent variable that you are willing to commit to. Um, so say, for example, you maybe wanted to commit to smoking, um, then you would have a cohort of smokers and non-smokers. You're committing to this. And so your study will be able to look at an outcome only separately between smokers and non-smokers. So while the evidence is stronger and it suffers from less biases because you're now going in the proper direction of time, 
Um, and, you know, like the way that you started from cases and all the clinical reasons why those cases may manifest, um, you know, like access to care or other things that are out of your control in case control studies that can cause limitations. In a cohort study, you don't suffer from many of those biases, but you have to commit to an exposure. Um, and so when you commit to that exposure, your outcome will be quite rare in that group. And so say you start from smoking and non-smoking, and now you're going to look at laryngeal cancer as your outcome. You have to construct these cohorts of smokers and non-smokers. Usually you can do this either in a, in a matched way where you start from all the smokers and then you maybe match them one to two, or you have a well-defined population. And so you can really just use an entire population of smokers and non-smokers. And so people can come into the different exposure groups at different points in time. And then you're looking at a rare outcome. You're in or number of people that you need to start with in those beginning kind of what you've committed to needs to be very large. And so if you're doing all of that kind of electronically based on, you know, clinical diagnoses that are a part of billing kind of in the 1990 or newer era, I would say, at least in the United States, uh, or particularly from 2000 forward era um, in most health systems, they would have some availability of electronic data that allow you to define these outcomes and potentially the exposures. A big sample size is maybe not a problem, uh, but if the lag time between exposure and outcome is long, and the outcome that you're interested in is rare, you're going to need to have a humongous group in each of the exposed and unexposed categories so that you have or observe enough people who get laryngeal cancer to be able to do the statistics to estimate the effect of smoking on laryngeal cancer. In summary, I would say that the biggest differences between the case control and the cohort study are case control studies allow you to look at uh, an entire litany of different risk factors as associated with the outcome or the disease because you sampled on the outcome. In cohort studies, you sample or start your study based on the exposure. And so you're only able to look at the relationship between that exposure and whatever your outcomes are. There are instances where the cohort study is maybe the thing you're most interested in. So for example, I, I have worked on a study for um, many years now where we, we were interested in a particular surgery and whether that surgery had what we what we claimed or deemed deleterious at long-term effects. Um, and so we recruited a cohort of women who had this uh, surgery over an extremely long period of time. So from the 1950s all the way through the 2000s. And we had a respective group of women who we matched to them from um, a referent or comparator uh, cohort at the same calendar year, same same. Um, age. And we followed those groups forward and we were interested in many different outcomes. And so in a cohort study, you can do many different outcomes, but in a case control study, you can do many different risk factors. Um, and so that's kind of the trade-off or play uh, between how those two things work. Whatever thing you start your or design your study based on um, sampling. So case control study, you start with cases. Cohort study, you start with exposure. Whatever you anchor those two you are committed to um, and and fixed in your ability to look at only the other thing um, in in more than one way. In other words, if you start from cases, you can look at a lot of risk factors. If you start from exposures, you can look at a lot of outcomes. Uh, but there's no design between those two where you can 
look at both a bunch of exposures and a bunch of outcomes in an easy way. Okay, uh, last question here with cohort studies. Um, we had talked a little bit about odds ratios in the context of case control studies um, and then mentioned hazard ratios. Can you talk a little bit more about how we typically, you were talking about how time, we look forward in time. How, um, my understanding is it's really a statistical statement more than anything. Um, can you touch on how we think about statistics in those types of cohort uh, studies? Yeah, so because in a cohort study, you start from an exposure um, and you normally have a group who doesn't have the exposure of interest. And so you can the you can think of the exposure as really the the same as what I called in a case control study as a risk factor. It's it's the thing um, or the entity that you're trying to see whether or not being exposed to that uh, puts you at higher risk for a disease or outcome of interest. Um, and so you'll you'll notice that I use different words for really the kind of the same thing in terms of it, what you're trying to get at um, for a case control study and a cohort study. But in a case control study, I specifically call it a risk factor uh, because I feel like it it's easier to understand that it's coming before in time from where you're starting, even though it's still the in the cause effect um, kind of like cascade of uh, temporality. It's still the thing that is the cause, not the effect. In a cohort study, I call it an exposure um, instead of a risk factor. You can also call it a risk factor if you want. Um, the reason why I call it an exposure in a cohort study is because that's the thing that you're committing to when you develop the cohort. And so you have exposure or you are are unexposed or you're in the, the referent or comparator group. Um, and they're not always dichotomous. Um, and so, you know, for example, in a cohort study, you can have a cohort study that is just, um, it's everyone and it, uh, like it's a whole well-defined population and your exposure is actually a continuous measure within that cohort. Um, and so say it's the amount of, potential mercury in your diet or something like that based on a, uh, a survey that you do about how much fish you eat and, and other things. Um, and then starting from that survey date that everyone was everyone in a well-defined population is given a survey, then you split people into two and in, to, into two groups as high or low, or you can just leave it as a continuous variable. But the point is that you then look at uh, the outcome of interest. And so because you fixed on the exposure and you're now following people forward in time to the outcome of interest, there is a time component that is specifically built in to the statistics piece of the analyses. Um, and in, in statistics, these type of analyses are, are kind of colloquially called survival analyses, um, but I tend to use the term time to event analyses uh, because your outcome is not always mortality. I would say probably the most common outcomes that people do because it's easy to assess is is death. Um, it's a fairly simple uh, dichotomous zero one, either you're dead or you're alive. There's not really much in between. Um, and that's a fairly common outcome to look at. There are other outcomes that are recurrence of disease or there could be, you know, like even even you could start from an exposure of smoking and the outcome would be a disease itself. Uh, so the example we gave earlier where your exposure was specified as maybe you gave in the 1970s, a well-defined population was given a survey that asked about their exposure to smoking. And you now have a continuous measure of smoking that ranges from zero pack years up to maybe 35 or 40 pack years. You follow that cohort of people forward in time. 
um, and you want to look at lung cancer as your outcome, um, that lung cancer is not death. Um, and there's a time component between when you assessed smoking and the outcome of lung cancer. Uh, and that time component component and the way it's analyzed is time to event analyses or specifically Cox proportional hazards models. If you have some covariates that you want to throw into the model, um, otherwise you can do log rank statistics or Kaplan-Meier kind of visual components. Those are some of the words you might hear when you when you when you read papers in this space. Uh, but the point is that one of the analytical things that you're now assessing is not just the exposure, but also the amount of time that the person is under risk with that exposure before the outcome. Uh, and so baked into the analysis uh, itself now is this time to event um, or amount of time that the person lapses between exposure uh, and outcome. And the, the thing that comes out of these Cox models is called a hazards ratio. And you can think of it roughly as um, an estimate of, in this case, you really can think of it as, as the normal way people think of, of risk, which is a multiplicative type thing. And so you can say if a hazard ratio is two, you can say that you know the risk of lung cancer for people who smoked was two times that of the group that didn't smoke. Um, and so it really does have kind of this more uh, straightforward way of thinking about it that is on the uh, multiplicative instead of the odds uh, scale that you had to be a little bit careful how you tiptoed around the way that you described an odds ratio. Um, hazards ratios, you can get away with describing in a way that's kind of more straightforward and, and is normally the way that I would say is a little bit more natural to talk about risk. The next study design that I wanted to ask you about, Brandon, was uh, randomized controlled trials. So um, as you mentioned before, oftentimes consider the highest level of evidence. Um, there's several key features of a randomized controlled trial um, that I wanted to have you potentially touch on if, if you wouldn't mind. So maybe I guess if we could just start with the basic fundamental principles, the idea of, of why um, an RCT is special, how it's distinct from a cohort study, and then, then we can get into some of the things like allocation, con um, concealment, things like that. Sure. So case control studies and cohort studies fall under kind of the umbrella of what are normally called observational studies. And so there's no actual intervention or, um, you know, like we're not reaching into or changing in any way uh, the relationship between the risk factor and the outcome or the exposure and the outcome. Whereas in randomized controlled trials, they're not observational anymore. They're now kind of classed into this group that are called experimental trials. And they're called experimental for the main, the main reason is because the exposure now um, or the independent variable, the thing that happens earlier in time, the cause, if you will, uh, is now randomized to people who are in the study. Um, it's no longer just observed in its natural state of how it occurs within the normal population at large, but it's, it, it, it is actually, um, it's an intervention or, or randomization that takes place. And so we decide this patient gets treatment A, this, this patient gets treatment B. Um, and we do that using uh, randomization techniques within statistics to make sure that, you know, for example, there are, there are all kinds of different allocation ways uh, to make sure that, you know, one group isn't uh, 
by random chance older or younger than the other or more 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 commonly female or male um, but this randomization component essentially gets rid of all of the stuff um, or the potential problems uh, that you can see in observational data which is um, so f- for example if your exposure was uh, a drug in a cohort study there are clinical reasons why a person might be given drug a over drug b and you know more severe cases of disease might be given drug a more often than drug b whereas in a randomized controlled trial which drug you're given is no longer dependent on characteristics of your of your of your disease or of your exposure um, and so you're now looking at or trying to at least separate out the independent effect of uh that's what i mean it's your independent variable but you're trying to you're trying to split out the independent effect of what that um, intervention is on the outcomes by using statistics and randomization instead of by the interventions of clinical practice and severity of disease and all these other things that can kind of be rolled up together with uh, treatments or exposures often can you define for us the difference um, between allocation concealment and blinding? Yeah, so allocation concealment basically just means that a a patient shouldn't be allowed to know whether they're going to be on. So common terms that are used in randomized controlled trials are a placebo um, or standard of care if a placebo is not something that would be reasonable to give somebody with uh, the disease that you're trying to treat. That's kind of the group that is not the group that it's your reference group or your comparator group. Um, and then the active treatment group or just the treatment group sometimes called uh, is, is the group that would be given kind of the experimental um, intervention. And so it might be a new drug. It might be a new combination of drugs. And so in those two groups, a person should not allocation concealment means that a person should not be allowed to know which group they're going to be in before they decide if they're going to enroll in the study. And so you don't preferentially get people saying, I'll be in your study, but only if I'm on the active, um, because they're kind of in a last-ditch effort uh, to be a part of your study. In other words, the allocation concealment guarantees or ensures that the randomization component will be able to balance on all of the kind of the the carry-along um, characteristics of a person, and it isn't impacted by preference or volunteer kind of bias uh, in the the person who's going to be on the study. And so, in other words, a person shouldn't be should not be able to allow, be allowed to um, decide which treatment arm they want to be on before they decide whether they want to be in the study or not. And you're talking there. Um, that would be the definition then of allocation concealment. Correct. Um, blinding would then talk about the clinicians performing the study or? Um, so there's different levels of blinding. So a, um, a patient themselves should, strictly speaking, should try to be also blinded to which treatment they're on. And so you don't really want to slip um, as, a, as a clinician and, and let patients know which arm of the, the, the trial they're on. However, that blinding is sometimes difficult to maintain if there are marked improvements um, in one particular arm than in the other, there can sometimes be kind of like uh, bleed. Um, I don't know exactly what term you want to use for it. I'm sure there's some term in the in the in the clinical trial space, but there can be un, a, a, a level of unblinding because uh, a treatment is working particularly well. 
and that's why kind of clinical trials will often have stop rules and and those types of things built in such that you know if it's, you just have this amazing new treatment and all the patients in one arm are doing extremely well and and all of the ones that are in the reference group or the placebo comparator arm are doing very poorly um, it's often people talk, you know, people, <laughs> people can have conversations with each other. They might know other people who are in the trial, um, and they can often become unblinded, uh, because of the, the sheer fact that they're doing extremely well. Um, the clinicians should also be blinded to which arm the, the patients are in, um, which then prevents the clinicians from accidentally revealing to the patients, uh, which arm they are in. Those are the two main types of blinding. Okay. And then um, just getting back to this randomization idea, obviously, you know, you had mentioned different statistical ways to do that, all, all sorts of different ways. Um, people have tried to randomize uh, patients in different studies. Most of the time it's done, done with a computer model now. But in terms of then when we start reading an RCT, um, that table one that um, typically displays those two groups, um, what are we looking for in terms of comparing the um, randomized group, groups in terms of the experimental and uh, control arms? So in a, in a randomized controlled trial, the main thing that you want to make sure is that the randomization worked in the sense, and by worked, I mean that they the two groups, both the kind of the, the treatment arm um, or the intervention arm uh, and the comparator arm or the placebo arm, whichever particular kind of verbiage is being used, depending on what type of thing it is, that those two different arms, the normal is for two arms. You can also have more complicated trials with multiple arms, but we'll just keep it simple for now. Um, so there normally will be a column for the comparator group um, that got the standard of care, placebo, uh, whatever. Um, and there will be a column for the active treatment or intervention treatment. And then along the left-hand side will usually be this kind of litany or long list of all kinds of different characteristics in these people. Um, and then there will be kind of, normally on the far right-hand side, there will be a, a, a column with the p-value saying, were there significant differences between the group of people on all of these characteristics um, who got the placebo or standard of care versus those who got the active or intervention treatments? And normally what you want to see is you want to see all of those p-values larger than 0.05, if not very close to one, which just means that the allocation or the assignment, randomization, whichever way you want to say it, worked in the sense that it balanced these two groups who got which treatment arm um, on all of these other characteristics by randomization. And so you would expect that the two groups should have about the same age, should be evenly split or similarly split between men and women, um, would potentially be, you know, similarly split on, on race, ethnicity. If there are any other mitigating circumstances like severity of disease for a particular treatment, you would hope that the randomization would split, um, you know, like if there's some measure of disease, I don't know, like maybe some blood marker or something like that. Um, maybe for kidney failure, you would look at EGFR or, or whatever, and you would say, okay, the, the two groups should be as similar as possible on all of the things that we think to compare them on at the time of randomization. What does that mean? It means that any differences we see downstream in the dependent variable, you know, as, as time marches on, any differences we see in these two groups, the, the placebo and the, the active groups, 
could be attributed to the specific intervention or treatment drug that that group was given, not to any of the things that were different at baseline at time of randomization. That's the goal is to try and disentangle the possibility that what you see downstream is due to something else other than the thing that you randomized, be that either a surgical intervention or a drug or, uh, or whatever thing you were able to randomize. Um, one thing I had forgotten to mention too, as we were talking through these different um, components, is that not all RCTs have uh, the blinding, the allocation concealment. It's, it, they're not all created equal. Um, and sometimes it's just impossible to do it that way. And so just when we're reading these studies, just those things should be explicitly stated um, if they did happen. Um, and and the, related to that idea, one other thing that should be explicitly stated, something that I, I wanted to ask you about was, so now that we've randomized the sample or the cohort, when we go to actually analyze these randomized samples, can you touch on this idea of an intention uh, to treat principle? The primary, at least my understanding of the primary idea of intention to treat principle is that the investigators don't, at the time that analyses roll around, when you're going to actually be doing the statistical analyses and trying to draw some inferences about your population and the association between whatever your treatment was that was randomized and the outcome of interest. And so let's say there was a drug um, and the standard of care drug, a new drug and a standard of care drug were given to people. Um, and you wanted to see whether or not the survival. So did it, did it improve uh, mortality after that drug was given? Some of the people will drop out, almost always will drop out of a randomized controlled trial. There may be side effects of the drug. There may be other things that are going on in their lives or just things that you can't control for. Um, and the intention to treat principle is kind of, at least my understanding is, is associated with that you don't, you don't randomly throw people out at the analysis phase based on whether or not they met. So for example, you might say that in order to be in the analysis, you had to have reached um, or, or been included in four uh, follow-ups or something like that. So setting kind of an arbitrary requirement that people are involved for the entire duration of the, of the trial can bias your results one way or the other for whether or not there's an experimental finding between your treatment and your outcome. Um, and in other words, if the side effects are really bad for the treatment and a whole bunch of people drop out, but the ones that ended up staying in your analysis were the ones that didn't have these side effects, um, you're going to have a bit of a biased uh, relationship between your treatment and your outcome based on things that you've kind of post hoc decided to, to subset. So intention to treat is also kind of related with this idea and statistics of carry forward, um, which is that when a person drops out, you assume that that they dropped out for a non-differential reason um, and that you carry forward their last known value um, to what would be the end of the trial time. I don't know if that's getting at what you're kind of getting at there, John, or if that helps. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that just that idea of a kind of a good example is like immunotherapy or something like that um, for head and neck cancer, where people drop out due to uh, they can't tolerate the treatment they still need to be analyzed in the treatment um, arm. You don't just look at the people who were able to tolerate it and see their outcomes over time. If you can't tolerate the treatment, that's important to take into account in terms of when we think about effectiveness of something. Yeah. And I think, so one of the things that you can sometimes roll into those, roll into analyses 
you know, and it, it ends up being somewhat of a post-hoc analysis, but one of the things you can kind of roll into the analyses is these secondary outcomes. And so maybe mortality or recurrence of cancer or something like that is your main outcome. But if you're also seeing that a whole bunch of people are dropping out in one particular arm of the study, that could become one of your secondary outcomes where you say, well, we need to take this into account when we when we look at the efficacy of this drug, because, you know, 30% of the people dropped out of this arm because they couldn't tolerate it. Um, but the ones who could tolerate it did very well. Well, what are some of the things that could help us maybe predict who's going to tolerate it versus not tolerate it? Um, so you kind of end up with these these nested um, analyses or explorations built into your randomized controlled trial uh, that try and better inform or at least help you understand how to interpret this data from a, a clinical perspective by maybe being able to better better specify who would be eligible for the drug up front versus not eligible based on characteristics of the people who dropped out or weren't able to tolerate. And I think, you know, like that's a big area in research, like in the pharmacoepi area where they are specifically looking at responses to at least when it's something that you're consuming, like a medication or being injected with or whatever, that, you know, the people who have negative reactions to these things can often be identified or sometimes identified um, by looking at genetic or pharmacogenetic characteristics of these people and being able to better say, okay, up front, I know this person's going to do really poorly on this, on this drug. They're not going to tolerate it. They're going to have awful side effects and they're going to drop out um, if they were recruited in a clinical trial. Often what that does is it will, uh, it will sometimes inform the design of a randomized controlled trial so that the inclusion criteria are um, a little bit more strict or something like that. Um, um, th- that is kind of at least what I've seen by by following the literature some and, and what little bit I've been involved in. That's kind of the, there seems to be a bit of a feedback loop there sometimes where these newer areas of medicine can help inform a little bit better. All right. Last uh, topic uh, that I wanted to cover in this episode, Brandon, was just systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Won't spend a whole lot of time here. Just uh, I think this is a little bit more of an intuitive section. There are some key elements that are growing in popularity um, in recent years, like registering your protocol ahead of time. Prospero is one example of a way people do that. The Prisma criteria are now pretty much ubiquitously required by um, most journals. I guess just taking a step back, could you just give us an overarching uh, why behind systematic reviews and meta-analyses? And why is, for instance, a systematic review and meta-analysis of high-level RCTs considered the best level of evidence, quote-unquote? I mean, I, I think conceptually, it's it's fairly easy to understand why they are considered the highest level of, of evidence. It's essentially that it's been replicated multiple times. And so, you know, if, if I observe, you know, A comes before B and A comes before B in 50 different studies, um, and it's always as A is higher, B is higher um, or manifests in a worse way. If you see that enough times over and over and over, and you don't see a lot of contradiction to that, and there will be some studies that could potentially go in the opposite direction in terms of their estimates for risk, it's it's more reassuring um, and kind of more in tune with the whole idea of evidence-based medicine to see something that the evidence suggests the same relationship over and over again. Um, and so I think that's that's really what it boils down to for those systematic reviews and meta-analyses is really they're, they're essentially using statistical techniques to try and combine together 
um, results from a whole bunch of different uh, studies that were potentially done in slightly different ways, um, but with the general design being that an exposure or a risk factor is associated with an outcome and you know, maybe the exposure was defined differently, slightly differently amongst the different studies and the outcome was defined slightly differently amongst the different studies, but kind of trying to come to a consensus of, okay, these studies are relatively close to looking at the same scientific question. If I glue them or paste them all together um, and use a little bit of statistical magic uh, to summarize them in, in a new measure of risk that takes into account how big they were, how big the studies were, or how many people were in them, then that is kind of a higher level of consistency across across the, that particular space of science. And lastly, when we talk about systematic reviews being systematic or why we even have um, the PRISMA guidelines for how a systematic review is conducted, can you just touch on why, why that's important? Why can't you just do an expert review? Why is, what's this idea of, about it being systematic? I, I think the main concern with expert reviews is that experts usually have strong opinions. Um, and will usually have strong opinions in one direction or the other for what they think is the reality. And so by setting some, some ground rules or, or boundaries around how do we include or exclude a, a study that is included in our kind of composite review of a relationship, you can better ensure that something hasn't been kind of on a whim excluded uh, by the quote-unquote expert uh, because that particular piece of evidence didn't necessarily uh, jive with the rest of the studies that made that that cut. And so I think it's really a, it's a way of trying to make sure that that information isn't included and excluded from these uh, these composite reviews on the whim of or on the kind of a priori ideas of what the expert reviewer would think uh, the association direction should be. Maybe it goes without saying, but uh, I guess, would you agree with the statement that a systematic review is only as good as the data that comprises it? I would agree with that um, statement. I think, you know, one of the things that I think that is a, pot a potential downfall for systematic reviews and something that all of evidence-based medicine suffers from or potentially suffers from is what has classically been a bigger problem than maybe it is now. I know some steps have been taken to try and uh, decrease it, but publication bias is a real problem. Um, and so if the only way that someone can, someone can get their study published is if the direction of an association um, goes in a certain way, then the only thing that is going to come within the purview of even a standardized or systematic review are going to be the studies that made it into publication. And so it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy if there's not the ability, at least, for people to get their research published in large um, and well-controlled, well-defined um, studies that maybe isn't as quote-unquote sexy as some of the research that would be coming out um, that gave an, a hazards ratio or an odds ratio that was much bigger than one. Um, it's important to include those studies that aren't necessarily finding signals um, just as much as it is to include the, the studies that are finding signals in order for that systematic review and, and corresponding meta-analysis to really be relevant. Yeah, I know I've certainly heard some uh, folks talk about just even 
um, selecting only English literature uh, results in some potentially some degree of publication bias and that studies that report a positive result may um, or have the potential to be more likely um, to be included in English literature versus a negative study maybe not as likely to get into a good journal. I, I would agree with that assessment as well. Um, and the, the fact that the medical journal world has changed so much over the last maybe 20 years, um, and we have a lot more online-only journals, um, journals that are, if you will, pay-for-play type journals where you know you send your article to them and, and those articles are reviewed by peers um, or they're at least sent out to somebody and, and they're reviewed and you get feedback, but then to actually get published in that journal, there's some concern sometimes for these journals because the publication costs um, are, are you know, something that the, the authors themselves foot, whereas historically, you know, journals would cover those costs um, based on subscribers, but people don't really subscribe very much to paper journals anymore. Um, and those, in order to actually pay for the personnel and the, the teams that are required to do the editorial processes, the compositing, all that kind of stuff, the money has to come from somewhere. And so there's, there's, it's a different world now than what it, than what it used to be um, on the publication side. And so even, you know, sometimes I even worry about um, what a systematic review or a meta-analysis would look like if it were done only on publications and kind of the pre-online open access era versus the post online open access era where you know some of the benefits of open uh, open access and online are that you know negative studies or studies that aren't quite as exciting will be more would probably be more likely to be published but one of the the down downsides of that is that uh, you never kind of really know you don't you don't quite know as as much about the the, the quality of the study sometimes because as more and more and more journals are created quality of what seems like it's able to get published seems to go down proportionally as well. Well, I think that about wraps up questions I had for this first part of our evidence-based medicine series, talking about causation and bias and study design. Were there any areas or pieces of information that you felt um, like we didn't cover or things you wanted to add here before we uh, wrap up and move on to the next part? Yeah, so I guess that the only the only last thing that I would just want to make sure that people were aware of is is the idea that a randomized controlled trial is is the best you can do doesn't mean that you always can do a randomized controlled trial. And so, for example, you cannot randomize people to smoking. You cannot randomize people to environmental exposures like pesticides or um, maybe air quality, those types of things. Um, so the best you can do oftentimes is an observational cohort type study or a case control study. And so even though that's kind of lower on the hierarchy of the pyramid of levels of quality of data, I wouldn't get hung up too much in, in always wanting, if you're, if you're a perfectionist, always wanting to do the best you can um, is the key. Uh, but realizing that the best you can do sometimes is a cohort study or a case control study. The, the last thing I guess I would say is that oftentimes these studies are not completely independent in the sense that, you know, you may do a case control study in a, so for, say, for example, you have um, a group of people that had a particular inner ear surgery and, and wanted to look at um, how common that surgery was. And so you did maybe a, a population-based incidence or prevalence study or something, a descriptive study where you kind of looked at natural history and that kind of thing. But then you took those people who have that type of surgery um, and because they were well-defined and, and, and they 
took you time to, to identify. Um, you then wanted to look at, okay, what are the risk factors for having that type of surgery? And so then you could do a case control study where you take all of those people who had that surgery and you now match them to some controls and you look at backwards in time and you say, okay, what is what are some of the exposure or risk factors that these people had that led them to the point of needing this type of surgery? And then still within that same group of people who had that surgery and they're potentially, you could also use their matched controls in this sense, but now you flip it to the opposite um, side where now the surgery is the exposure or the risk factor and you frame that as a cohort study. So you can, you can, I don't want to say reuse because that has some maybe kind of negative connotations, but you can optimize the use of, or the inclusion of, of people if you do it in a well-defined kind of setting so that you can look at both risk factors for something that's of interest, the outcomes for that thing that's of interest, some of the natural history or descriptive studies. And some of these people that are in your study may also be in a clinical trial related to that particular exposure or risk factor of interest as well. And so I guess I would just say that think long-term when you're trying to design um, these types of studies and try and think about how you can optimize. If you're going to spend five years creating a cohort of people who have a specific disease or surgery or intervention, think about how that cohort or a group of people may be beneficial to better understand maybe some of the risk factors that got them to that point or some of the outcomes that happen after that particular um, out, you know, like, in other words, what I'm saying is that something that is an outcome in one study can actually be an exposure in another study um, of the same group of people. Um, and you really just have to think about this temporality piece. Uh, if you're looking backwards in time, you can frame it as a case control study. If you're looking forwards in time, you can frame it as a cohort study. Um, and be, be efficient with uh, how you use your time and, and invest yourself from a, a scientific uh, discipline standpoint so that you're not always trying to reinvent the wheel. You can kind of build this space where you are, you are kind of known as the guru or the expert um, and you have this large group of people that can be used to look at both what happened in their past and what happened going forward um, to help better understand uh, this disease or surgery or intervention of interest. All right, that'll wrap things up for this first part of our evidence-based medicine series looking at uh, study design, causation, and bias. Uh, stay tuned for our second part to this where we'll talk about p-values, clinical significance, um, survival analyses, and touch on how to uh, interpret or, or read a journal article um, and, and pick out some potentially misleading parts of that. And so uh, no summary or questions for this one, but thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.